save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World, and I'm Ellie Weiss. We've been covering a wide range of topics around cougars and their habitats, the way they see the landscape, and their needs within the larger landscape. Of course, within this type of discussion, the topic of hunting is going to arise, and as we have discussed, each state in the U.S. has different laws and different protections for our American lion. As of now, California is the only state where puma concolor is protected. However, as we've also learned, they can still be killed legally through a depredation permit for taking livestock or pets. This, however, doesn't mean that they aren't still being taken illegally as well via poaching. As the headlines in social media seem to be full of lions in the neighborhoods and headlines, we hope to also rewild the east with lions from dispersing males and females from the west. So this brings up further questions as to why we need state wildlife officials to readdress our carnivore management in new and effective ways. Phil Johnson, certified in track and sign interpretation by the Cyber Tracker Conservation, joins us again today to bring further understanding to the conservation and management value of tracking mountain lions, as it not only lets people know where the lions are, but what effects the lions have on their habitat and vice versa. What tracking lions tells us about the individuals, their habitat, and the wide-ranging effects of removing lions from their territories effects on other lions, and effects on us through hunting and poaching, and also the difference between myths of tracking and the reality of tracking sign. Hi, Phil. It's great to have you back. Hey, Allie. Thanks for having me back on. You bet. Um, we, we had a great conversation last time, and we left off with like a lot to still cover about what it is you do and um, getting a little deeper into, you know, walk in the wild. So um, let's see. Let's, let's start with delving a little deeper into your studies of what tracking the cat uh, entails and the value of the data you collect. Um, It seems lately one of the principal obstacles for wildlife is the human-induced fracturing of their landscapes. And more than fences by far is the building of heavily trafficked highways and major freeways. What are the effects on lions of these barriers? Well, yeah. So luckily uh, for the lions in my area, you know, this is one of the most wild places uh, really in the country and maybe the world. um, That just the area between... Highway 36 and Highway 101 and I-5 um, up to the Oregon border in California is just a massive wilderness area. And it's bisected by a couple smaller highways and rivers, but those are all, you know, dispersal barriers, uh, not dispersal barriers, you know, for mountain lions. They can cross those relatively easy, so it's not a big problem for them here. But Throughout the rest of California, where it's more developed, it becomes a major, major problem where, um, and there's there's two things that the highways do. One is they kill lions, you know, from roadkill and uh, 
we can talk about all the effects that just that sort of mortality has on the population and the broader ecosystem. And then they can actually form just a barrier to dispersal and to immigration of mountain lions, which is necessary for population health. And so that's the problem basically in Los Angeles area where these mountain lions are bordered by, you know, eight lane freeways. And most of the time they just simply won't cross that. You so know, when you say – one second. When you say immigration, are we talking about both immigration with an I and emigration with an E, moving yep. in and moving out? Absolutely, yeah. So to maintain any healthy population of animals, the area, one, needs to be big enough to either have a bunch of animals in it or that area can be small enough to support, you know, not a whole population of lions, maybe just a couple – but then they need to be able to have their offspring leave that area and have other animals come into that area so that they can breed with them and not have, you know, inbreeding and, um, you know, basically suffer from that sort of uh, inbreeding depression and just negative effects of, uh, you know, breeding with a close relative. That's, so, a, that's a really good point because um, let's just go over quickly again. Mountain lions don't occupy the same territories with their offspring unlike you know lions african lions who create a pride they're solitary elusive shy animals and the young both female and males have to move out yep yeah and so you know females will oftentimes set up shop you know right next door to their mother's home range but males just don't do that they move far more often than not uh sometimes you know hundreds thousands of miles <laughs> wow. and yeah so that, mean, that that right there is maybe something we can address in a little bit in that getting those thousands of miles not only the barriers within your area but the barriers these freeways and our neighborhoods create this gauntlet that they have to go through yeah, I mean, and the most major and significant barrier to mountain lion uh, immigration with an I, emigration with an E, and dispersal of young is the entire uh, Midwest of this country. Right. Um, because as many listeners will probably know, mountain lions historically covered all of North America, you know, from Washington State to New York State and all the way down to Florida. But they were extirpated from the eastern half of the United States. And now, you know, the, the easternmost population, excluding the Florida panther, which is an isolated population in the southern end of Florida, the easternmost population is in the Black Hills and the Dakotas. And mountain lions disperse from there, and that is how they occasionally end up on the east coast. I mean, there, there's a great book called uh, Heart of a Lion by William Stolzenberg which uh, chronicles the dispersal of one male lion from the Black Hills in Dakota and the trail of evidence and genetic material that he left as he traversed the you know, entire eastern half of the United States from the Dakotas all the way to Connecticut where he ended up getting killed by a car on a highway. Yeah, and, we, we did an episode with Will and that it's not only a beautiful book, but the, the back trail of sort of what you do walking um, through lion habitat, the back trail that Will put together of the life of the two-year lifespan of this lion getting to Connecticut is really 
a, a love story in a beautiful book. So thanks for mentioning that. I know Will will be happy. So oh yeah. <laughs> so let's yeah. Well, I mean, but that's just such a barrier to dispersal. Lions will recolonize the East, but there's just this huge barrier of agriculture, land, and cities and highways that that's what's keeping them from there. You know, so. Well, we we keep hearing, you know, uh, little little bits of sightings in the east. They're just not quite confirmed. Yeah, I mean, and that's it's just because. Well, uh, I should say right off the bat, most of those sightings are, you know, uh, false, basically. Um, but there are occasionally confirmed sightings. You know, animals occasionally are road killed over there, uh, or you know, shot or find you know genetic material. It's just very rare because it's those one individuals who disperse from so far away and miraculously make it over there. So, you know, just thinking about the chance of enough animals making it over there at once of, you know, sufficiently diverse genetic backgrounds to establish a population there, it's remote, you know, those chances. I personally believe that it will happen eventually, but... It's going to take some time. Well, this is part of you know our conversation and what we've been talking about over the last couple of months and the critical importance of creating corridors, connectivity, so wildlife can move, especially our large carnivores and our willingness to coexist with them. And that's some of what we're going to talk about today. So um, let's let's get into a little bit more about how they cross these highways, these super highways, um, and there's the concept of wildlife crossings, overpasses and underpasses, and the importance of camera traps. Yeah, so those those crossings on highways, you know, it's become a more popular phenomenon in the last decade or so to basically create areas that are specifically designed for wildlife to cross safely. Um, and Animals will naturally find those areas because, I mean, they, they don't want to go walking across an eight-lane highway. And that's why oftentimes they become a barrier for immigration. Um, but these are basically, you know, a man-made landscape. It can be an overpass or an underpass, um, like a tunnel under the highway. And those animals will then disperse across those. Um, and it, it just creates a safe way for them to get over the highways. And the camera traps can be used to monitor those areas and to just before you're going to put in an overpass or an underpass to identify where are mountain lions traveling on the landscape because they tend to use big landscape features such as major ridges or major gullies or drainages to uh, river corridors, you know, to funnel themselves across the landscape and to travel. So camera traps and tracking can both I mean, those are kind of the only way to identify these corridors that mountain lions and other wildlife use to cross the highway. Because, I mean, if you put, you can spend $5 million and put in a giant, beautiful overpass over the highway, but if you put it in the wrong place, it's not going to have any helpful effect for the and, mountain lion population. Right. And, and this is where your field of study and your work really come, becomes important, getting boots on the ground out there to see what part of the landscape they're using yeah yeah i mean there's there's so much that can be learned from tracking 
and from camera traps if if you are familiar with the animal's behavior and can sex the animal from pictures or from tracks and interpret their behavior there's lots of stories there and lots of predictions that can be made well um, give us give us a few examples well you know for example um uh, on the camera traps, if, if you have a mountain lion scraping, like making a scrape, uh, which is a behavior they do with their hind feet, where then they usually urinate or defecate on top of it, it's an it's a olfactory, so scent, and a visual cue for other lions that, hey, there's a message here. And these mountain lions leave them at places where other mountain lions travel and they don't leave them in places where there aren't other lions you know it's kind of like you don't speak to a room where no one is in it you know or you don't leave a message somewhere where there's no one that's going to read it so mountain lions create these scrapes in places where other mountain lions will read them and so males create them to um, communicate with females to say, you know, hey, I'm here, this is my territory. If you are in estrus, let me know and we can breed. Um, and they also, you know, potentially tell other males that, hey, this territory is occupied. In my experience, it, it really seems like the, the scrapes has everything to do with finding each other. Um, people in the past have said that the, the scrapes are about maintaining territorial boundaries and there may be some truth to that, but w- when I see the vast majority of scraping happening, it is because males and females are going, are trying to find each other and trying to breed. And my observations lead me to believe that female mountain lions only create these scrapes when they are in heat or asterisk, which uh, they go into every, every 27 days for about six days. Um, and then and then they can get bred during that six days. So they're not, not like other animals, like bobcats, which have a breeding season, you know, in the late winter or early spring. Mountain lions can breed any time of year. And they, these scrapes are how they find each other, you know. And if people go to my website, um, earthatfirstsight.com, and click on the animals and land link, they'll see a lot of videos of mountain lions creating these scrapes, males and females, um, scraping together and then finding each other and using this as a communication method. But so just a good example is that if you have a female scrape, this tells you, you know, this animal is an estrus and a male is going to be there, oftentimes more males than one. Um, it is uncanny how good these animals are at finding each other, considering how spread out they are uh, of across the landscape you know you may have an area of you know 70 square miles where just there's very little lion activity and then boom the one female that's in there comes into asterisk and then all of a sudden that week there's two or three other males in that area and they're all coming to try and find that female it's kind of like the call of the wild and the lion version of p-male (laughs) <laughs> yep, no, it is. <laughs> so um, on one of your posts, I read something that you, you had said that's really beautiful, that um, when you look at your camera trap footage and you, you're watching the lion, that you ask the questions, you asked of the viewer of your post, what gender is it, what is it doing, and what you can expect to happen 
um, in terms of lion behavior the next day, week, month, or year. And that what you're doing is unraveling the secrets of their behavior and glimpsing their wild lives. Yeah, and I mean, this just goes to, you know, there's the the lives of animals are, are so deep and full of, you know, just as much richness and diversity of experiences as our lives, as people are, you know. And when I see any individual lion on one of my camera traps in my study area, you know, it, it tells you something. And there, a story is going to unfold over the next, you know, days, weeks, month, year, you know, for example. And I've seen this happen time and time again. So to go back to, you know, say you have a female scraping on a camera, you know, that tells you that female does not have kittens, you know, right now, most likely, because they only scrape when they're in estrus, you know, uh-huh. and they're, they, they don't go into estrus when they have kittens. And then the males are going to come in there, you know, so that tells you immediately in the next week, there's probably going to be a bunch of lions in this area, you know, where the males are trying to find this female. And then there's going to be a lot more scrapes created in that area. And then what happens is one of those female, you know, one of those males is going to breed that female. So then what happens? You got a three month gestation period. And then that female might disappear off the landscape. You might stop seeing any sign of her um, in the area that she usually occupies, you know, and why is that? Well, because she's given birth to kittens from that breeding event. And, and do then, they hide them for a yeah. long time, similar to like African lions? The, the female African lion will leave the pride and hide her cubs for, you know, six to eight weeks before she reintroduces them. Well, so yeah, in African lions, you know, they're such a social animal that I would imagine um, there's a lot of complexity that goes into that, and I, I don't know enough about them to say for sure. Well, what's with- exciting is, you know, how different our American lion is, and that's what, you know, this conversation is about. So I am all ears. Yeah, well, so what, what female mountain lions do when they give birth is they just try to hide their kittens from, you know, other male lions and then also predators like wolves, coyotes, bears, things that can kill the kittens when they're too young to defend themselves, you know. So the mountain lions, they'll seek out just, uh, in my experience, you know, for lack of a better word, just a really nasty thicket, a place (laughs) that other animals are not likely to go, you know. Because they, if they don't, you don't want to give birth on like a major grizzly travel route, you know? Right. Because they want to give birth somewhere where just it's too energy expensive and unpleasant for other animals to even enter the area, you know? Okay. So mountain lions go into this sort of area, give birth, spend, you know, about a week just in there with the kittens nursing. But then that female has to go and make kills to sustain herself. You know, and to be able to keep producing milk to feed her offspring. And so their home range basically just shrinks down. When they're, when they're not pregnant, or when they're, sorry, when they don't have kittens, they are going to be roaming, you know, maybe over 70 or 150 or 200 square miles, um, just as part of their natural rhythm of, you know, finding deer to eat and uh, meeting other males and stuff. And then when they give birth, 
their home range might shrink down to just a couple square miles as they're they tend to give birth in an area that's really thick and has good access to prey so they don't have to leave the den for too long at a time to go hunting and then you know you might not so if you're not looking in that one small little area where the female happens to be uh you may not see any sign of that female in the area where you used to find a bunch of evidence. And then, slowly, as the kittens get bigger, you know, she starts to move them. They move the den. And then they kind of slowly stop um, denning behavior, which is just having a really centralized area where the kittens spend most of each day. They stop that altogether. And they just start to kind of just resume the normal mountain lion pattern of just traveling and then sleeping a little bit where you eat something. And then moving on. And the kittens will do that with the female until they're about a year and a half or a little bit more old. And then they'll disperse on their own. And that at, female at will age, go what, back into estrus. Okay. Wow. That's that's fast. So at what age do um, young mountain lions, the kittens, disperse? What I've, they, I've, they heard that disperse that a, I've heard that sometimes they're with the mother for up to two years to learn how to hunt yeah that that can be true um they it's it's usually a year and a half to two years okay yeah yep so this kind of leads us into um a point that we'd like to discuss is you know to hunt or to not to hunt and the potential effects of hunting so as we said before in california their lions are protected but they can still be killed for uh, with depredation per- permits for, and I think we discussed this last time as well, for t- snacking on a pet because fences don't mean much to a lion um, or, you know, taking hobby farm livestock because California is not an area where livestock is concentrated like it is in, in the West here. So what are, so what we're seeing happen, and we've talked about this a bit across the several episodes on cougars is that we're seeing lions more in our urban and sub-rural areas where we live in the wild. So part of the question is, are these mothers with kittens? Are they orphan kittens? And then what happens to the whole social structure between males and females and mothers and kittens when a lion is removed, be it male or female. Let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah, well, th- there's a whole lot to uncover um, with, with that. And when we're seeing mountain lions more in urban areas, it's, it's not necessarily going to be any specific uh, demographic of lions. But when we see lions more in urban areas, it tends to be because development is happening somewhere (laughs) you know so the development um, is moving into their area versus the cat moving into developed areas right and you know with with mountain lions you know there's no rule book for them you know they're just these animals born into this world and they're just trying to live you know and they have their their instincts and their needs and and their intelligence to decide you know what's going to be the best strategy for them and if they you know, don't have any negative associations with humans necessarily, and they see a nice landscaped uh, golf course that has a pile of deer feeding on the grass, uh, 
there's no reason that mountain lion's not going to go down there and try to predate those deer. And that's that's a, an important thing to recognize is, you know, say, let's think of some, you know, arid western landscape where it's, you know, sagebrush kind of desert habitat out there. If you have a town built in there, you know, what do humans do? They irrigate stuff, they grow plants, they make like a little oasis of vegetation. I mean, that is deer heaven. <laughs> that is the perfect place for deer. So they're going to create, you know, oftentimes there's an artificially high density of deer around human habitation because of our the way that we alter the landscape. And then mountain lions, of course, are going to be drawn to that, you know. And I don't want to give some, uh, an impression of like a massive, uh, you know, sucking effect of mountain lions just coming pouring into human landscape because that's just not happening i mean for the most part these animals evolved to exist on the the landscape on this continent as it's been for a million years and they are perfectly at home out in the wild you know hunting deer and that's the way that the vast majority of mountain lions spend their lives but, you know, some of them do get um, drawn down into the human, you know, wild lands interface. And I've seen it here in my study area where, you know, the best habitat for deer was actually alfalfa hay fields, you know, right on the edge of the national forest. And there'd just be a ton of deer in there. And the mountain lion, I had one caller female who spent all her time hunting the deer in these uh, alfalfa fields and hay fields right on the edge of the national forest. And looking at her GPS data, I was always worried that she was going to get into conflict, you know, with uh, that she'd kill a, a livestock or a pet or something, you know. But every time I went and investigated those GPS clusters, uh, it was a deer. And she would kill a deer, you know, sometimes like almost right in somebody's backyard and just drag it up into the hills and feed on it, and no one would ever know she's there. And that is an example of the perfect mountain lion, <laughs> you know, for for human interaction. If you don't know it's there, that's a good thing, you know. Just because it's there killing deer in its backyard in your backyard, that doesn't mean it's a threat to you. In fact, that means that that's a healthy lion doing what it's supposed to do. And, and because they're so shy and elusive. They really don't want to be around us. No, right. I mean, mountain lions evolved in the presence of, of much more formidable predators than, you know, human beings in terms of their physical abilities, like grizzly bears, short-faced bears, dire wolves, saber-toothed cats, you know, and the actual American lion, which is similar to the lions in Africa, much bigger cat. Um, so mountain lions, you know, are a subordinate predator, basically. They're afraid of things, and they they try to be secretive and to hide their kills. They're afraid of people. And when you have a problem mountain lion, it's because that threshold of desperation has become... Something has happened, so they're no, they're no longer able to feed themselves in the wild, and they've become desperate enough that they are willing to basically swallow their fear and go into a human area. That's a big risk to have to take. That's a huge decision for a lion. Uh, yeah, and there's there's piles of dead lions to attest to that. Oh, that, it's, it, that's unfortunate in, in some ways. So when you, when you say piles of dead lions, well, actually, I'm going to hold off on that question because 
I'm fascinated, but we need to step away for a short little break. So, folks, stick with us because this is fascinating and we've got a lot more to talk about. So we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Phil Johnston, uh, tracker extraordinaire. And in the first section, we learned a lot about looking through the eyes of a lion. And this is what a tracker does. Um, and this is what Phil's expertise is. So we left our, our last section on a bit of a sad note, uh, piles of dead lions coming into conflict um, over desperation of lack of resources and coming into human landscapes and meeting their end for some reason or another. So this kind of leads to our next point with to hunt or to not hunt. Um, and you know, does one rule fit all? So what are the potential effects of hunting lions? So, you know, I, I like to take a very open-minded approach to all of this, you know, because I have friends who hunt mountain lions and I have friends who are just vehemently opposed to hunting of anything, you know, vegans, basically. And so I try to appreciate everyone's point of view on this and be respectful of both sides. And, you know, for me, 
there's there's different angles to look at this. So potential effects of hunting, you know, one, it's not impossible that in certain places there's an overpopulation of mountain lions. You know, I haven't seen that personally, but, you know, one effect of hunting in an area where there's a really high density of mountain lions could be to lower the population of mountain lions, and that might in turn benefit deer herds, you know. And in the case of the Sierra Nevada bighorn sheep, that has been, you know, basically the key to their recovery has been the lethal removal of a handful of mountain lions who became really effective bighorn sheep predators. And the long-term strategy for that is to let the sheep regain a big enough population that their numbers are sufficient to be able to withstand the impacts of mountain lion predation but when and, there's and only a hundred and human right. hunting right okay right. So go ahead i'm sorry yeah. yeah and so when you know but when there's only 50 bighorn sheep one mountain lion might be able to kill all of them over a year or two you oh, know okay so that just to be fair you know that's one side of the potential effects of hunting now so, the other potential effects of hunting can be really negative in terms of orphaning mountain lions or just wiping them out entirely like uh how many people die on the east coast every year because of impacts with vehicles and deer right a lot, a lot, a lot of people, you know, and there's a huge problem with deer overpopulation on the East Coast, so much so that their deer season there, you know, for hunting, for human hunting, they allow you to take two deer every day in some states, you know, which is in in uh, California, you know, it's two deer for the whole season. <laughs> and, and, and I just read something recently that um, a lion was sighted in a urban area in Des Moines, Iowa, and it's because there's so many deer in the area that they actually were opening up a neighborhood deer hunt to reduce the deer population. Right, and so, you know, that is the perfect example of one effect of hunting, which was, you know, just widespread beyond hunting. I mean, it was extermination of mountain lions in the East Coast. You know, these huge predator drives where hundreds of guys on horses would just go through the woods, corralling all these animals and just killing, you know, hundreds of them. You know, not hundreds of lions, but, you know, maybe a dozen in one drive over hundreds of square miles and killing bears and foxes and coyotes and they they just wipe them out and so now what do you have you have a huge overpopulation of deer and a much less healthy deer herd in general because these animals are competing with each other spreading disease too quickly because they're too dense on the ground and just um damaging the landscape with their overabundance basically and then killing people you know in a direct way by causing vehicle impacts you know people who live on the east coast they know i mean you have to be careful driving at night because you know you can hit a deer uh and that that can be really dangerous so that's another effect of hunting and then you know to get into the specifics of it in the west a lot of what happens you know is people will either target large mature males like a type of trophy hunting uh, situation where they want to get the biggest lion possible um, or you know some people will just hunt lions you know however and whichever lion you know some people don't target males is, I guess is what I should say and 
there's two effects that can happen from that. So one, if you if you harvest a female, it's really, really, really difficult to know that that female does not have kittens somewhere. Um, and basically the, the law for most mountain lion hunting uh, says it's illegal to harvest a female with kittens. Uh, who basically has kittens with her at the time of the hunt, you know? But as you said earlier, she, during that one period, she, so in tracking, you can figure out where a female lion is because she's denning and staying around, but perhaps the, the tracker or the hunter is not knowledgeable enough to know that she's in that area for such a long time because she has kittens and takes them. Uh, well, it takes the female. Right. So, well, what what happens is as the kittens get older, you know, say when the kittens are, you know, 12 months old, the female may spend, you know, three, four, five, six, seven days away from the kittens. You know, she might kill a deer, leave them there, leave the kittens on that deer kill, and then go for a big old walk by herself, you know, looking for the next deer to kill over a week almost. And... So this is a really, really important thing. If you, if you put me on the ground and somewhere in the western U.S. and showed me a female lion track and said, I need you to tell me if this female has kittens somewhere, you know, and your life depends on you being right, I would, I would want to follow that female for two solid weeks every day literally following her tracks and camping on her trail and then starting again before I would give you an answer as to whether or not I thought she had kittens because they can spend that long apart from their kittens, you know, and it's not reasonable for us to expect a hunter to be able to put in that level of effort to accurately make that determination whether or not that female has kittens, you know, and oftentimes what happens is they go out with their hounds in the morning. They find a track. You know, they may not even know if it's a male or a female, or they might. And, you know, if they say, oh, it's a female, well, they might follow it for an hour or two, you know, maybe a mile, and say, well, there's no kitten tracks. Let's run it. You know, put the dogs on it. That's just simply not enough time to have any idea whether or not that female has kittens, you know. So this is where would, your work becomes important because you work with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and other agencies to better understand what's going on with the lions to be able to, uh, let's say, create management plans, yeah? Well, you know, I, 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 I'm, I mostly just work for the Hoopa tribe doing these things, but, you know, all mountain lion researchers are, are working together, in a sense, trying to come up with better... Um, better management guidelines, you know, and I think that most people who really understand mountain lion biology would agree with me when you, when, when I say that, you know, it's not, it's just simply ridiculous to think that you can tell that a female has kittens, uh, by following her tracks for a mile or two. It's, it's, you know, it's like flipping a coin. It could be, I mean, I, I would honestly say that it's more likely that she does have kittens than that she doesn't. Because if you think about a mountain lion's life, here's the stages, you know. They, they go into estrus every 26 days, or 27 days for six days. And then they spend, you know, three months in gestation if they get bred. And they almost always get bred. You know, a female 
usually, in my experience, they only go into asterisk one time, and then, boom, a male finds them, boom, they're bred. Three months later, they've got kittens. So that's four months where the female had no kittens. And then, look at this, for the next year and a half to two years, she has kittens, you know. So if you put all that together, you know, that's a 48, you know, or 52-month period of time, out of which four months she didn't have kittens. Wow. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So the vast majority of a mountain lion's life, a female mountain lion's life, she has dependent young. Um, so if you showed me a female mountain lion track and said, do you think this cat has kittens? I mean, the chances are good that it does have kittens somewhere. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, and so with, it's, you know, even hunters, mountain lion hunters who make a really, you know, heroic effort to try and determine if this female has kittens. You know, like I said, if I wanted to be sure, I would want to follow that cat every day for two weeks, you know, and maybe some hunters do that. Um, I'm, would, I'm sure, though, that most of them do not, um, well, just because that's so much work. Well, it's like here in Colorado, we have a predator management program in, in effect. It's been effect for a while of removing lions and bears to boost our deer population. So I'm not going to get into my thoughts on that. But can, um, can one visually tell by looking at a, a female lion if she's pregnant? Nope. No. <laughs> okay, so unlike... No, no, there's no, there's no way to tell if she's pregnant, I mean, or if she just had a, a big uh, meal, you know. I've, okay. You can tell when they've, when they've... I mean, they have a full belly of deer sometimes, and it's like, wow, you know, that lion looks like it's pregnant or just ate a bunch of deer. Yeah. You know, there's no way to tell those two apart. We, we call um, that the belly factor in Africa when you see that big belly, um, but with not. female... African lions, you can tell they're lactating. So that isn't a good sign in female mo- mountain lions. Well, you can you can sometimes see if they're lactating. You know, if they've given birth. You know, but again, they're only nursing for uh, two to three months. Okay. You know, at the beginning, and then I mean that's two to three months out of sixteen to you know twenty twenty four months that those kittens are going to be dependent on that female. You right. know? So just because the female is not lactating, that means nothing. Okay. You know, she probably still has uh, dependent young. And because- also, as you said, she goes off trail and hides in, into nasty thickets to keep these young from being seen. Right. It's, well, especially when they're young, you know, and right. so... Yeah, and she spends a lot of time, you know, separate from them. I mean, it's just a tough, tough task to try to determine if a female has kittens, an adult female has kittens or not with reliability. I mean, yeah, sometimes it's easy. You go out and you see, oh, yeah, there's tracks of four lions right here. I mean, the only time that happens is when you've got a female and kittens, you know. Um, So what do you think? This just brings a question to mind. The efficacy of removing the entire family of lions, which is what happened here where I live, just down valley. Uh, five lions. Well, yeah, five lions were seen in a neighborhood. One was on its own. Then there was a mother with three cubs, and they were all euthanized for um, the reason uh, human health and safety. Well, I mean, 
In terms of the efficacy of it, I mean, it sounds like their goal was to remove those lions, and they were effective at doing that. Okay. Um, in terms of that's effect on, you know, whether that's a good thing to do or not, um, it depends on the situation, you know. Look, does that I does mean, it create a vacuum? Does it create a well, vacuum that more lions come in that are less experienced or other orphans that may be around? Does it does it create that kind of vacuum like it does in coyote killing contests? It just well, you know, upends yeah, I mean, everything. It, it can. So coyotes have a specific um, evolution where they they howl to see if there's other coyotes around, and if they don't hear howls back regularly from other packs that triggers physiological processes which causes them to give birth to bigger litters so they like they are it's a really really fascinating and cool feature of coyotes where they're just they sense that there's emptiness around them and so they just pump out more more coyotes to go fill that up um which makes sense evolutionarily mountain lions have not been documented to have that same thing but um it just makes fundamental sense. Like if there is good lion habitat and there are mountain lions nearby, mountain lions will go to that habitat, you know? So if you have a bunch of mountain lions in a neighborhood that's backed up to perfect mountain lion habitat with good deer populations, and this neighborhood has a bunch of nice landscaping and really high deer density, you can kill as many mountain lions as you want in that neighborhood, and it's just a matter of time before more come in. You know, more are going to come in because there's the features of the landscape that have drawn them there in the first place. And then you the know, females can pump out kittens. Right, and, you know, the kittens are going to disperse um, far and wide, you know. So in terms of wiping out that whole family of mountain lions, like, I don't know enough about, about that particular story, and you can fill me in on it if you want, but uh, if those lions were causing problems, I mean, look, human safety is important, and it's basically like your neighbor. Um, picture, picture this. You've got a neighbor who lives next to you, and he's just a super, super nice guy, you know, always helpful, not loud, doesn't cause any sort of problems. When he moves out, what are you thinking? Right. Who's moving I in? I wonder who's going <laughs> to move in, right? Right. Who's going to move in? And it might be another really nice guy, or it might be a bunch of drug dealers who party all night long and, you know, create all sorts of problems, right? right. It's the exact same sort of thing with mountain lions. So if you have a lion there, like t- think about the female I mentioned earlier who's living on the edge of people's yards but never getting seen, never causing any problems, just taking a deer and then dragging it off into the woods and feeding on it, you know? Well, in this you, particular you, story, I don't know if it was a male or a female, dragged a deer through the neighborhood. So yeah. they felt that that was a threat to the people, although the lion had not threatened anyone. It was just seen dragging a deer down a, sort of an off-fringe neighborhood street. Yeah, well, here, I mean... Human safety is important, and it's important for carnivores, too, because, you know, if that mountain lion did kill someone or injure someone or attack someone, it damages the reputation of carnivores as a whole. You know what I mean? And it contributes to this fearful attitude uh, that people have about carnivores. And it's important for managers to respond and to make sure that that sort of situation doesn't happen, you know, just for the human safety, and for the reputation of carnivores as a whole. This but reminds me, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
but you know, it's like I said, you know, if you if you shoot that lion, you're going to get another lion. You just don't know who it's going to be. It may it may be one who is more prone to causing more conflict, you know. So if you have just because you saw a lion in your backyard killing a deer, that is I mean, it's a bad idea to shoot that lion. Okay. It's a, just because if it can kill a deer, that means it's healthy. You know? Okay. Okay. That means that it's doing what it's supposed to do. If it's in your backyard killing a dog, that's a different story, you know. And then you probably want to take some steps to try and haze that animal or limit the things that are drawing it into your neighborhood in the first place. Well, maybe we could spend just a couple minutes on that. You know what people can do um, in our neighborhoods, like where I live out here in the Rocky Mountains and a great valley, and we have lions. Um, the the perspective that people can look at to do their part of responsibility in ensuring lions don't come in, keep their pets secured, um, walk their pets on leashes. What, what are some of the things that we can do as we look out or if we're told uh, lions are in the neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, a mountain lion is not going to come in to your yard to just peer through your window and see, you know, how many toddlers you got in there to eat. That's just ridiculous. What draws mountain lions into human areas is, you know, typically livestock or free-roaming pets, you know. Like where I work in Hoopa, there's a ton of dogs running around, and that draws in hungry mountain lions because they can prey on those dogs. And it's just all about limiting any attractants, you know? Like, when you go camping in the woods and, you know, there's bears in the area, you don't leave a bunch of attractive bear stuff around. Everyone knows to be careful, have bear canisters, you know, um, and just be really careful with their food. With mountain lions, it's exactly the same. You just, you don't want to have a bunch of, you know, sheep running around on the edge of the forest and then leaving them out all night long. I mean, that is going to draw in mountain lions. And the same with pets and dogs, you know, all that sort of stuff is is things that just attract mountain lions in. So that that brings me to another question and reminds me of when the hiker in Fort Collins uh, encountered a young mountain lion. You were one of the first people to sort of um, demyth and demystify the headline of jogger attacked by mountain lion and uh, the whole idea that brought that fear into everybody's minds of a huge 150-pound mountain lion was out there taking joggers and bikers. And <laughs> what you had written, and you'd done a very wonderful post that um, once you found out the data, it was a 35, 40-pound lion and that it was a young juvenile that probably was orphaned. So this this brings, because you're a tracker, and a lot of people are recreating farther and farther out into the wild, um, seeking experiences, not just necessarily extreme risks, but communing with nature. How can we be prepared and what to look for in knowing where we're going, if there's a lion or not? Well, yeah, you know, there's um, the, the main thing is to just be willing to accept that risk, you know, when you go out into the wild, all sorts of stuff can happen to you, you know, you're far more likely to, to break a leg and sit there and, you know, freeze to death than you are to be attacked by a mountain lion. And, um, 
it's it's or just even encounter that, a mountain lion, let alone be attacked yeah, by one. Yeah, I mean, you know, most people can spend their whole lives in the woods and you know not ever see a mountain lion. So it's it's just you know, um, so let's say something you, that people don't need to be so fearful about. True, but let's say you come across a scrape, or you um, there's been posts on Facebook of bikers coming along and around a corner and there's a lion. So let's say you want to spend some time out there and you want to be cognizant and responsible about being out in the wild and you see a lion track or a scrape. What should you do? Well, take Back a picture because that's a cool <laughs> thing to see. <laughs> you know? Um, I, you know, look, if, um, I, I don't think there's a, a one rule fits all in this situation. I mean, when I see mountain lion tracks, you know, uh, I don't, I don't get afraid. I, uh, you know, I mean, part of my job, I followed them. Uh, and it's, you know, I have never been in a situation where I thought a mountain lion was going to kill me, uh, you know, or injure me. And I've spent a lot of time, you know, close to them. So it's, um, I would say when people see a mountain lion track or something, you know, pay attention to your surroundings. You know, if you smell death, you know, maybe there's a kill nearby. Uh, Maybe you don't want to go walking down into that thicket. You know, it's just there are just basic things about woodsmanship that the public don't know. And I mean, I'm hesitant to dive into that right now because, I mean, this would be a whole hour, two hour, three hour conversation on its own. But we are just so disconnected from nature now, um, as, you know, our society. For for so that for me to try and explain, you know, people to how to be a woodsman basically and to be aware of the animals around you. I mean, that's something that um, I really focus on in the tracking classes that I teach and all that stuff, um, and and uh, workshops and and talks that I give. But um, I mean, there's a lot to it. And, but the first thing, you know, for the general public is just, just don't be afraid, you know. Well, I, it, think, I think you just stated that we have to have another conversation because we're, we're running out of time. We've got a few minutes left, and we didn't even get into the value of tracking in general woodsmanship and its value for research. So I think we have to have another conversation because we can't leave you know, our listeners hanging like this. So yeah. um, for these last few minutes of uh, today's episode, what would be our takeaway in terms of what we talked about well you know the main thing that i would that i would uh like to emphasize to folks is just that the mountain lions that are in your backyard are not a threat unless they're threatening you (laughs) you know just because you have a mountain lion in your backyard or even in your neighborhood killing deer i mean that's a sign that everything is is good you know when you kill that mountain lion, you're going to get another one, and it may not be one that wants to kill a deer. It may be one that wants to kill your poodle. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's um, – Or it may be an orphan it that – Or it may be an orphan that is clueless and not a very skilled hunter. Right, exactly. So, you know, and, and in this way, people's fear of mountain lions – can actually be a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, because if you're, if you're so afraid of lions that just because you see one in your yard, you call wildlife services and then they come kill it, 
you know, that may in itself give you a reason to be afraid of mountain lions because now you've opened up that territory and who knows who's going to come in. And it could be a lion that does cause problems. Now, would that so, apply to, let's say, the Fort Collins jogger, biker, who is out there in, let's call it the buffer zone, um, not in a neighborhood and not fully out there in, in out there, out there wild, but recreating is that does that same apply just because there was a lion there and it makes the headlines and he killed it that we shouldn't immediately get up in arms because there's a lion out there doing what it's supposed to do well you know in that situation the the mountain lion attacked a person and like that's just an obvious signal that something is wrong you know and in those sorts of situations it's appropriate for that area either to be closed to people until, you know, nature takes its course and whatever happens with those kittens happen, or for those animals to potentially be, you know, euthanized. Because oftentimes, if, if an animal is desperate enough to attack a human being, that animal is not in good shape and is not enjoying life. And oftentimes, that's a merciful thing. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, if a healthy mountain lion does not attack a person, you know, and if a mountain lion is desperate enough to attack a person, I mean, think about it. Those kittens are out there orphaned. If that's a 35-pound mountain lion, I mean, that's like a four- to five-month-old animal. It has almost no chance of surviving on its own, and that whole litter of kittens is almost, you know, it's pretty much destined that they're going to slowly starve to death. I mean... Life is tough out in nature, and wild animals, you know, die in really tragic ways all the time, just from the course of nature, you know. And um, in that sort of situation where those animals are starving to death, you know, that's a that's an ethical judgment call that people can make. You know, what is the most merciful thing to do here? You know, that's going to minimize any risk to humans. You know. Because um, it's it's obviously just a huge tragedy when someone loses a life or is gravely injured by an animal, and you know for wildlife lovers, if you really think about it, it's tragic for these kittens to slowly starve to death. You know, yeah. and most of these people, like myself, who have studied mountain lions for a while, have seen that sort of thing happen. It's a tough call, and this is you know part of what. Our wild world is all about is being able to understand what happens when we interface and create zones where wildlife is attracted or when we go out there to enjoy and commune with nature. Unfortunately, Phil, we are out of time for today, but this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on again, Ellie. It's been a pleasure, and yeah, I look forward to talking about uh, just wildlife tracking one of these days. Yeah, um, I think we're going to have to do that because I'm I'm hanging, so we can't leave our listeners hanging. So, um, once, right. <laughs> so once again, folks, thank you for joining us today, Our Wild World, my guest, Phil Johnson, and uh, we will be talking with Phil again, and meanwhile, go out and enjoy your wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.